Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome Isham Nation to the inaugural episode of Process This, episode number one. So it's exciting to bring this new educational platform to sterile processing professionals like you. In the past several years, Isham has introduced a new certified endoscope reprocessing exam and education material, new CIS book, a library of over 24 on-demand webinars, and now the Process This podcast. You know, our goal really is to provide you with relevant information that you can incorporate into your everyday processes. You know, we have a great program lined up for you today, uh, but before we begin, from all of us at Isham, we would like to thank you for all that you do and wish you a wonderful Central Sterile CS Week. We hope you are filled with appreciation, recognition, and satisfaction in knowing that what you do every day has very real and positive impact on patient outcomes. Patient care begins with you, so thank you from all of us at Isham and have a happy CS Week. So like I said earlier, we have a great lineup for you. We're sitting down today and talking to Corey Ofsted and John Island about flexible endoscopes. You know it's a hot topic. It's not going anywhere. So the more we can learn about endoscopes, the better we're going to be, the better patient care we're going to be able to provide. But before we talk to them, I'd like to take a minute and talk about some of the different publications that hit my mailbox every week. So if you're like me, I received several publications from the ARN Journal, APIC Journal, Surge Tech Journals, and of course my favorite, the Process Magazine from Isham. You may know it as the former Communique. When I was managing a sterile processing department, time was valuable. When I got home from work, it was family time. Homework, soccer practice, dinner, bath time. There wasn't a lot of time to sit down and look through the different publications even though I knew there was important information that I was missing out on. So we came up with this segment named Mailbox Mania. In this segment, Mailbox Mania, I'm going to look at the different publications, summarize some of those different articles for you, and then if a specific article interests you or really applies to a particular process in your department, then you can sit down and spend the time and read those full publications. This week in Mailbox Mania, we're going to review the September-October 2019 edition of Process Magazine, published by Isham. Um, So let's go ahead and dive into the Process Magazine. For me, I think one of the staples of the publication is the different lesson plans for each certification, whether it's the new CER or the CRCST. There's always good information for every level of technician, no matter where you are, in your career. The CER lesson plan in this issue talks about personal protective equipment, PPE, for endoscopy reprocessing. So it discusses the need for the facility to not only have a policy, but to make sure the facility is in compliance with that policy. You know, we always have policies, but we don't always follow them, right? The lesson plan discusses PPE requirements and recommendations and helps the reader distinguish between the two. So what are the requirements And then what are those recommendations that involve PPE? Another topic discussed is whether processing flexible endoscopes requires the same level of PPE as with other instruments that are processed in sterile processing. 
So if you're one of these facilities that has begun the process of centralizing endoscope reprocessing, this article offers some good information. Another highlight is the article compares recommendations from AME, AORN, and SGNA, and it does this side-by-side so you can make the best decision for compliance in your facility. Now that, I think this is a good article uh, about PPE and endoscopes, and if that's really in your wheelhouse, then you know take the time and check this one out. Another article uh, you should check out is the CIS lesson plan on laparoscopic appendectomy instruments. Now this article breaks down the LAP-API procedure by first identifying commonly used instruments and key inspection points for cleaning and assembly. It also goes into some anatomy and physiology, which is always important to have. Last, and what I like most about this article, is it describes the LAP-API procedure and how instruments are used during surgery. For instance, what happens during surgery when a trocar o-ring is cracked or fails during the procedure? What is the impact on the procedure and the patient? So unless you spend a lot of time in the operating room, you may not know how important simple O-rings are to the success of the procedure. So I like that aspect of relating the work done in SPD to specific procedures. You know, and, and if you don't spend a lot of time in the OR, and if you're interested in how instruments are used in the LAPAPI procedure, uh, then take some time and check out this lesson plan. So another good place to stop by is the Inside Washington, which is a regular in the Process magazine. The article updates readers on the ongoings in Washington, usually dealing with the FDA or updates with AORN and AMI. This issue talks about the changes made by the FDA with medical device reporting. It goes into improving the medical device reporting program and also discontinuing the ASR, Alternative Summary Report Program. You know, along with that, it also talks about the recent Joint Commission Quick Safety Alert for tenonomers and other devices that touch the eye. So if you're processing eye instruments, you know, you want to check out this issue and see what uh, the Inside Washington has to say um, concerning Joint Commission. So that's going to do it for this edition of Mailbox Mania. You know, tune in uh, to the next podcast. We're going to look at some other publications, you know, some that you may not have access to, like the APIC Journal or ARN Journal. These publications could improve the everyday processors to your facility. All right, let's talk about endoscope research. You know, I have the pleasure of introducing Corey Ofsted and John Island to the Process This podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the endoscopes and the scientific research that Ofsted and Associates have been involved in. Corey is the CEO of Ofsted and Associates and is an epidemiologist with 30 years of experience designing and conducting studies about the impact of clinical procedures on patient outcomes. John is a senior research associate at Ofsted where he collaborates to design and conduct studies and interventions intended to improve the quality of medical care and improve patient safety. He also provides expertise on infection prevention and regulatory compliance initiatives. Welcome to the podcast. Let's get started with a few questions. When did you begin examining the issues surrounding flexible endoscopes and reprocessing? We did our first study on endoscope reprocessing in 2008 and 2009, which is 10 years ago. That study found that human factors had a big impact on reprocessing quality. Techs and nurses, they didn't like doing some of the steps, and they were under big pressure to do the steps more rapidly 
and we learned that it hurt their bodies to stand at the sink and reprocess scopes. That led to them cutting corners, and we found that steps were skipped or done improperly about 99% of the time. Why did you choose, or why did you decide to study endoscopes, uh, hazards, and reprocessing? You know, when that study was first published, the GI docs were skeptical about the results and said that there is no proof that skipping those steps resulted in dirty scopes. They didn't want to invest in any additional training or time or equipment for technicians without strong evidence that it actually mattered. And they were right at the time. We didn't know anything about the relationship between what techs did and how dirty the scopes were. So we designed and conducted a bunch of studies to measure contamination levels on scopes, and we started in facilities that were well-respected and had good adherence to guidelines. A lot of times when we do studies or when we're doing some research, we kind of have an idea of what we think we're going to learn. What was your biggest surprise from those first studies? Well, we were astonished to find that the scopes didn't come clean, even when the text did all the steps in accordance with guidelines. In the study at Mayo Clinic, we actually stood in the procedure room and in their processing suite, and we watched them to make sure they did everything correctly for every scope all the time. They followed the IFUs to the letter, from pre-cleaning, leak testing, manual cleaning, drying, etc. Nevertheless, there was still organic soil in most scopes, and the cultures found live bacteria in 64%. Well, and since we started with those uh, those early studies, we've seen breaches in poor quality practices all across the country, all across the U.S., and the contamination rates have been higher. Some of them have been clear up to like greater than 90% of fully reprocessed scopes, and these were scopes that, that the hospital would have considered patient-ready scopes. Um, back a while back, I was a surveyor of the Joint Commission. I knew they were processing the SPD world because every year the, uh, the citations under uh, IC020201, which is high-level disinfection and sterilization, mm-hmm. it kept going up every year. But I would have never suspected these organizations all across the board, to include the ones who were really, really good and had no citations, that they still were uh, had such high levels of, of contamination and even physical damage almost every single uh, single scope. And that wasn't just occasionally that, that uh, we have found with offset associates. We would find that at every organization. So what changes uh, have you observed over the past few years? In the last couple of years, uh, we've heard from more and more people out there that uh, they now are aware of the problems with endoscope reprocessing, and they're, and they're finding the same things in their organizations. So it's no longer, if you'll take this phrase, that dirty little secret uh, anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also been a really steep escalation in all the published papers and reports along the way. So it's showing that uh, uh, to the FDA that maybe the scopes aren't as durable as we thought, and the instructions for reprocessing may not be sufficient to get these scopes clean. It kind of sounds like a, a lot of this stuff's a little disheartening, some of these findings. What is one thing that's giving you some, the most encouragement when it, when it involves scopes? For me, it's the recognition by Isham, Amy, AORN, and SGNA that we need better technology, guidance, and accountability for those folks on the front line. We think that's leading manufacturers to develop innovations, including the single-use components and scopes, and better reprocessing technologies. I think the truly effective solutions are going to combine technology and guidelines that have been validated in real-world settings, and Isham's really leading the charge for that. For me, um, it's encouraging that there's a growing awareness of 
that we need a quality management program uh, out there. Um, I've been involved with uh, uh, SPD and the operating room since I was a 16-year-old technician. So I've seen all the stuff that we've done on the surgical side. I mean, we, we sterilize the instruments. We, uh, we uh, uh, test uh, all, all, all the, uh, the workings of all the instruments. We do uh, machine uh, parameters to make sure the, the sterilizers are working well. We do mm-hmm. chemical indicators, uh, biological indicators. It just The list just goes on and on. And I'm starting to see that maybe that's going to come into the scope world. You know, 10 years ago, here, here's the other thing that makes me feel really good, is that 10 years ago, no one would have said there was any problem with scopes anywhere. Yeah. Problems did not exist. Yeah. Five years ago, well, maybe there's a problem somewhere here and there. And now it's just common knowledge that this is just not working with the scopes. Mm-hmm. What one thing has been a disappointment when it comes to endoscope safety? Wow. Uh Again, a guy that's born and bred in the OR, and I love my toys. <laughs> um, I, I, it, what, what is disheartening is the lag in the automation um, in on the uh, operating room side, or or any any of the industry, airline industry, um, any of the high risk areas, procedures, and processes get more and more automated, so we can engineer the human factor, that human oops factor, out of the equation. But it seems to be really slow going for change uh, automation and innovation in the scope world. Frankly, I've been disappointed that we just haven't seen strong leadership from the FDA and physicians on this, as I'd expected them to do whatever it takes to ensure patient safety. Instead, we're seeing that the demand for improvement is coming from the front line, from ISHAM and APIC members specifically, and we're especially glad that those folks are engaged. Uh, what are some basic things healthcare facilities can do to improve safety in their endoscopes? Well, the first thing they should do is make sure that the personnel responsible for endoscope processing have received sufficient training and competency testing to ensure that they're able to handle the complex steps involved. Given the complexity and the critical nature of these responsibilities, I think everyone who's, ha- who's handling the scopes should be certified. However, training alone is not going to solve the problem, and the facility should have their biomed department or a repair contractor evaluate their endoscope inventory and their reprocessing equipment to make sure all the scopes are free of damage and that the leak testers, irrigation systems, AERs, drying cabinets, etc., are in good working order. That'll give the techs a better foundation for successful uh, processing. And then after those two things are in place, they should make sure that the techs are actually doing the leak tests, the visual inspection using lighted magnification, the cleaning verification test, the MEC test, for every scope, every single time. That, that That's important, but... I also want to bring up something else that's important to me, and, and I, it's really brought forth in the ISHM survey that was published in the July-August 2019 issue of, of Process. Um, it's absolutely essential that techs be given enough time to do their job. I mean, I mean they, they want to do a good job. We need to give them the, the time to get it done. But you'll see in that survey, and, and we know they cut corners, but we just didn't realize how, how much, uh, how many of the, of the folks were put under pressure, really strong pressure mm-hmm. to keep to keep hurrying up. While I was in the Army for a couple of decades uh, in the operating room, I, I was also a risk manager and a QI kind of guy, and, and I know acutely aware, acutely aware of how important it is to have a solid, active, involved QI program so that you can find out where your weak spots are and, and, and do a better job, not only for yourself and your department, but it's for, it's for these patients. It's the patients we're working for. So, I'd like to see that we, we get a more involved quality program 
And along with that, that we would recommend that maybe the facilities then would get a subject matter expert to come into the SPD, take a look at what they're doing, and give them a chance to evaluate their setup, get a, a chance to evaluate their, 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 their process, and their final product. On these issues, when you get somebody, can, a subject matter expert, one, but two, somebody that can step back from the program, you'll start finding things that you perhaps wouldn't notice if you were living at uh, 24-7, 365. So that way, at the end of the, the quality program or in the midst of the quality program, you can be confident that what you're doing, what you're doing is, is the best you can do for patient safety. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a really good idea, a really good process that we could, that should be implemented. So what advice would you give to an endoscope or processing te- technician based on the studies that you've performed? Well, I'd recommend that techs do three things. First, start by learning absolutely everything you can about the scopes and work towards certification in endoscope processing, starting with the course and the certification program offered by ISHAM. Certification will give you a stronger foundation on which to stand when you go to your managers or facility leadership to demand the time and the resources needed to improve your reprocessing outcomes. I'd also recommend that you approach the routine testing that John was talking about with an open mind rather than just rushing through the steps when you're doing leak testing or cleaning verification or visual inspection, uh, MEC tests, etc. Because your job is not to jump through those hoops, but to identify scopes or AERs that have problems. And the test can actually help you succeed with that. When a test fails or you see something concerning, don't think it was something you personally did wrong. Just say, huh, I wonder why that failed, and start looking for reasons which could identify problems with the pre-cleaning or delayed reprocessing on the front end or water quality or scope durability that might be causing those reprocessing failures. Lastly, I'd urge technicians and other members of ISHM to share your observations with other people, your coworkers, supervisors and managers, and other ISHM members. To find solutions, we need to work together. Last year, you completed a study on bronchoscopes. Can you share with us some of those takeaways you found? Absolutely. The main thing I learned is that the outcomes of bronchoscope reprocessing are as bad or worse than they are for any other kind of scope, even though bronchoscopes are way shorter and less complex than the big GI scopes. During that study, we found that 100% of the bronchoscopes in three big hospitals had residual soil after manual cleaning, and 58% of them still harbored bacteria or mold after HLD. We also saw that 100% of those patient-ready scopes had visible defects or debris inside them. So we saw breaches in all three hospitals, and then in two of the hospitals, the techs were skipping virtually every single step or doing them improperly. So one of our key takeaways is that the process just doesn't work. It shouldn't be a surprise when you're skipping steps or using badly damaged scopes on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. that that leads to maintenance and and processing problems all across the board in all types of scopes. In 2018, you conducted a survey of ISHAM members. How did you decide to conduct a user survey? Oh, that's a good question, John, and my answer has two parts. First, after we completed our bronchoscope reprocessing and drying studies, We wondered whether the issues that we found at the study sites were similar or different than what's going on in other facilities in the U.S. and beyond. Second, 
We knew that the FDA had required the three big endoscope manufacturers to do studies to evaluate reprocessing effectiveness for duodenoscopes. And part of those studies involved doing surveys of technicians to see if they could read, understand, and follow the manufacturer's instructions for use. We heard that they were having trouble finding any to, anybody to participate in their studies, and we thought it would be interesting to see whether ISHM members have access to endoscope IFUs and find out if they thought that the instructions were easy to understand and follow. We were also interested in learning more about the environment of work, as we're concerned about workplace injuries, exposure, and stress among folks who process scopes. So we spoke with Natalie Lind and Patty Conker at ISHM, and they agreed to collaborate with us on doing this survey. So what did the responses say about the current state of endoscope reprocessing? Well, we asked more than 2,300 ISHM members, uh, and they completed an online survey. We learned that things just haven't changed much in the last 10 years. The findings, again, will be published in the July-August issue of Process, so you can go back and read that and get all the uh, all the, the numbers there if you'd like to read them uh, for yourself. Great. The survey found that, that uh, most techs are under this tremendous pressure to go faster, and this led to cutting corners. In fact, 17% of the issue members that complete the survey admitted to skipping steps in order to meet this pressure. So mm-hmm. we also learned that the manufacturer's IFUs are consistently not available uh, in the reprocessing area. And as a former Joint Commission surveyor, I can tell you that was absolutely no surprise. That was one of the first questions we asked when we went down to an SPD. Where's your IFU? How, how, uh, what do you have to go through to, to get to it? And, uh, and, and we found the exact same thing. Our survey um, that, that's in the ISHM uh, uh, journal identified the same issue with, with the IFU. A third of the members told us that the instructions were not easy to understand. And, uh, and they simply didn't think they were feasible to, to complete as the way they were li- uh, laid out. During the survey, what was the most surprising thing that you found? The pervasive toxic work environment due to bullying. Um, that, that, that was just disheartening. I knew harassment and hassles are likely to exist to a greater or lesser degree in any work environment anywhere. And so it shouldn't be any different uh, to expect that in the reprocessing world. But... Let me be clear that I don't believe this behavior has any place in any working environment whatsoever at, at any time, but I have absolutely no idea that the behavior escalated to that point to being called bullying and that it was so widespread that 40% of the members said they personally experienced bullying and that hundreds more saw it happening to their colleagues. Wow, that, that 40%, that's a big number. It's a huge yeah, I agree with that. And and for me, the most surprising thing was how little training is being provided to the technicians before they're expected to reprocess flexible endoscopes on their own. We found that a quarter of the technicians received receive less than one day of training on endoscopes, and another 50% received less than a week of training. There's no way a tech can learn everything they need to do the job well in just a few hours especially since they're supposed to receive training for each brand and model of scope that's being reprocessed, along with everything else they need to know about the AERs, the documentation systems, the PPE necessary to protect themselves, etc. So we just need to be looking at how much training uh, they're getting provided. So was there one thing, now it can be good or bad, so one thing that really stood out in, your resp- in the responses? Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, talking to an, to an old scrub tech himself, 
it was the level that everybody wanted to know their profession and they want to provi- pr- uh, perform those jobs even better. The top three topics that people wanted to hear was educational offerings for new standards, new technology, and certification. And if people didn't care, or if they didn't see their profession uh, as a profession, if they just saw their, their, their job as a J-O-B, there's no way they would want to have these topics uh, uh, be number, number th- one, two, and three on their wish list. For me, the thing that stood out the most was the challenging environment surrounding most of their processing personnel. The message was loud and clear. They're not being given the training, equipment, or time to succeed, and they're working under tremendous pressure to go faster, while frequently suffering physical maladies and severe stress related to the workplace conditions. I'm a strong believer in education, but this survey made it clear that education alone is not going to fix it. We have to find ways to improve the workplace conditions and the culture to foster an environment geared toward quality and continuous improvement. When this uh, survey, when the survey results come out, uh, what do you think facilities can really do to address some of these identified issues? Well, up front, I think the employers can start giving uh, the employees time and equipment to do the job to the best of their ability. And pure and simple, eliminate that hostile work environment now. I think the facilities need to recalibrate, rethink their expectations for efficiency and quality, and take a good hard look at the evidence. Right now, it's clear the techs are struggling just to survive and fighting an uphill battle where they're told to go faster and do more with less. Our data show that the number one concern about endoscoper processing was their own health and safety. We've got to face that the current approach is not only putting patients at risk of infection, but hurting our CSSPD techs, the foundation for infection prevention in any institution. It's time for facilities to prioritize this need for better work environments. And I'd like to echo John's recommendation that they just simply need enough time and equipment to do their jobs well. Do you think that there's anything that ISHM can do to really help these facilities or help the identified issues? Absolutely. I think that it, ISHM is uniquely positioned to help in this, in this area. The information is getting out there, but primarily it's just being passed back and forth through journals to other researchers, between the researchers. And this is where we think that ISHM can help. We need to get the information out to the reprocessing world as a whole. And ISHM can play an absolutely pivotal role in educating and raising the awareness. And, and oh, by the way, not just to, to the techs, but to healthcare community as a whole. I'd like to echo that. In, in my view, Isham has a great opportunity here to take these findings to the other stakeholders who have real power to make and enforce the regulations and standards and get them engaged. I'd suggest starting with OSHA, FDA, Joint Commission, CMS, and the major guideline issuing bodies like AMI and AORN. Well, Corey and John, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and the research that you do that really helps advance the field of sterile processing. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. That is going to conclude today's podcast. A big thank you to Corey and John for sharing with us on this first Process This podcast. For more information about Ofsted and Associates, visit their website, ofstedinsights.com, and check out their two webinars on flexible endoscopes. Keep an ear out for the next episode in the upcoming weeks. Sylvia Garcia Hutchins from the Joint Commission is stopping by to chat. Again, from all of us at Isham, we wish you a happy CS week. Stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.